0: 12. Uh, the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian Institute are involved in an ongoing project to preserve some of our our nation's uh, heritage. Our oral a not oral but oral a u uh, r a l some of the spoken heritage that is contained on everything from acetate to vinyl to even glass. Uh, Because if there's not an active effort to preserve uh, speeches, music, and poems, then we're going to lose it. Some of their efforts go back to recordings that were made as late as 1890, for example. Uh, Some involve the speeches of um, San Juan Hill Teddy Roosevelt. Some involve the music of Lead Belly, a blues guitarist singing Goodnight Irene. Uh, Some involve the early recording of This Land... Is is Your Land and My Land or My Land, Your Land? uh, You know what I'm talking about, um, by Woody Guthrie. So we have a rich heritage. And the Smithsonian Institute and the Library of Congress are in the process of trying to actively preserve this heritage. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it would have been like to have heard the voice of Jesus, to have been physically present and heard the voice of him who calmed the sea heard the voice of him who raised the dead, who still troubled hearts, who invoked the Lord's name prior to taking five loaves and two fish and feeding over 5,000 people. I've wondered what it must have been like to have stood on the plains um, around the Dead Sea or to have been on the banks of the Sea of Galilee when Christ spoke the Sermon on the Mount. Some years ago, I was on a mission trip and. Mexico, and we were in a in a. It would be comparable to West Texas. We were just across the line from El Paso, and we were in a wind-swept plain, dust flying everywhere, open sewage running down these tiny streets, uh, the hillsides bespeckled with uh, shacks, for lack of a better term. And uh, as we gathered there, and as worship music started, these these shacks on the hillsides would empty of their occupants, of those people who were living there, and they would come streaming down the hillsides. And I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to tell you that I had to wipe tears from my eyes as I saw the people coming down the hillsides, and I thought, what our Savior must have seen. When in Matthew chapter 9, when he looked at the multitudes, and he saw that they were weary, and they were like sheep that were scattered and without a shepherd. And he was. the Bible tells us he was moved with compassion. What it must have been like for this wearied multitude to have heard the voice of our Savior. Well, this summer we're going to hear the voice of our Savior. The vox deus, the vox deus, the voice of God speaking to us in the pages of the Gospel. So before we read the text this evening, let's just pause for prayer and ask the Lord to bless our summer and specifically ask the Lord to bless the reading of this text tonight. Father, as we pause before you, we are so thankful and grateful that your revelation, the revelation of truth and life and salvation and forgiveness and pardon and acceptance has been preserved for us, has been inscripturated, and we're grateful for the person and work of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our understanding and applies truth to our lives that we might come to a saving knowledge of Christ and then Increasingly be transformed and changed into the likeness of Christ. We pray this evening that you would uh, awaken our hearts, that you would clarify our minds, and that you would cause uh, your truth to be taught clearly, convincingly, and applied accurately to our lives. For this we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Those who did hear Jesus were struck by his authority at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Those who heard the sermon were amazed at his teaching because they said he speaks as a man who has authority, not as the scribes. At the end of a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes to what had become his his hometown, or what was his hometown, Nazareth. And they were stunned at the authority with which Jesus spoke. They said, is this not the son of Joseph? Is this not the carpenter's son? Where did this man get this kind of wisdom? Because he spoke with such compelling power and such penetrating authority. He was indeed the voice of God. The Pharisees, who were steady opponents, who were um, stubborn, contumacious, unrepentant, hardened opponents of Christ, sent officers from the temple to arrest him. In John chapter 7, and they came back empty-handed. And the Pharisees said, Why did you not bring him? And you can read this in John chapter 7. They said, Well... No man ever spoke like this man. The scripture tells us that the common people heard him gladly. And this is not to say that the sayings of Jesus were not hard. They were devastatingly hard. They were heart-penetrating. They were eye-opening. They were mind-illuminating. They were converting and convincing in their power and in the application. And we're going to look at some of those hard sayings. F.F. Bruce has a book entitled the hard sayings of Jesus, and he numbers about 70 from uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. He numbers about 70 that would be called hard sayings, and the staff has picked out 12 of, a, of the 70, and we've outlined it on the brochure with the dates. And I start off this evening with um, the uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit, what is called the unpardonable sin, but you need to understand that some of these sayings are difficult and they're hard to understand, just because they deal with difficult and hard subjects. So they're hard to understand because they are, uh, they are spoken in terms of a paradox. They're spoken sometimes in a word that, that in a way that is enigmatic. You can't quite get your mind around what the Savior is really saying. But, but listen, here's the thing. I think they're mostly hard because they pierce and penetrate our hearts and call us to a radical submission and obedience to him who is both Savior and Lord. I think that's why they're hard. I think they're hard because in these sayings, Jesus puts his finger on the same heart issues which we wrestle with in the 21st century that his first century here has wrestled with. We wrestle with the same heart and life issues. We wrestle with the same greed. We wrestle with the same lust, the same anger, the same unforgiveness, the same settled unbelief. We wrestle with the same self-preoccupation, the love of pleasure and the love of this life and the love of this world more than the love of the life in the world to come. So in these hard sayings, they become hard because they expose our hearts for what they really are. And in that exposure, Jesus is saying, submit your life to me, follow me and obey me. I who am both Savior and Lord. So in Matthew chapter 12, Beginning in verse 22 and reading through verse 32, tonight we tackle a a hard saying, the sin of uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And follow with me beginning in verse 22, Matthew chapter 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In verse 29, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This is an important passage. It's an important text, and, and it's so for a variety of reasons. I think it's important principally because some people are falsely imprisoned by guilt, Some people are falsely imprisoned by accusation, either from their own uninformed, biblically uninformed conscience or perhaps even from a more sinister source. You know the name devil means uh, accuser, slanderer. Some people are imprisoned because their conscience is not informed by the Word of God. Some people are imprisoned because of uh, the slanderous work, the accusing work of Satan himself. Some people are imprisoned because they believe that they've committed an unpardonable sin. Either a sin that um, is not related to this text, they've committed something that in their mind is so heinous that they cannot be forgiven, or they actually believe that they've committed this unpardonable sin of speaking against the Holy Spirit. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you may remember the scenario where Interpreter, which stands for um, the person and work of the Spirit, takes Christian into Interpreter's house and shows him a man in an iron cage. The man in the iron cage is bound by despair and a lingering sense of being not forgivable, that he has sinned himself away from grace, that he has passed the reach of God's mercy. He is fully persuaded in his own mind, locked in this iron cage, that he cannot be forgiven. In the course of pastoral ministry, I've met many people who believe that their sin is beyond the reach of grace, who believe that somehow Calvary and the Lamb of God's blood shed at Calvary is not sufficient to atone for their sin. I've encountered some people who believe that they have indeed committed this very sin, that they have spoken so ill of the person and work of the Spirit that they believe they are guilty of an unpardonable sin. Francis Schaefer, in a book entitled, now entitled, uh, The Letters of Francis Schaefer. This is a collection of his correspondence addressed a lady by the name of Alice. Alice was a pastor's wife. She was birthed and brought up in the bosom of the church. She had two children. She was a Sunday school teacher. From all external observation, you would say that she was a committed follower of Christ. And yet she had no peace in her life. She was plagued by a deeply wounded conscience and a nagging sense of doubt that she had committed the unpardonable sin because she had thought something about the work of the Holy Spirit. And she wrote Dr. Schaefer. And uh, Dr. Schaefer's response would be worth the price of the book itself because he goes into some detail on this. Uh, I was actually acquainted with a pastor once. who, Though he was a pastor, and uh, filled the pulpit week after week and and did the usual pastoral uh, duties and responsibilities, believed that and wrestled with this nagging thought that he had sinned against the Holy Spirit because of something he said in remark to uh, in, in response to someone um, and the whole idea of speaking in tongues. He had made a critical judgment and assessment on that, and he believed that he was guilty of this sin and was plagued for years. F.F. F. Bruce in the, the book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, says, In real life there are few more distressing Conditions calling for treatment by physicians of the soul than that of people who believe that they've committed this sin. So it's important for the health of our hearts and the well-being of our souls and the peace of our conscience that you and I understand exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says that every sin can be forgiven but one, and it's this sin. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit's a divine person third person of the Trinity, He's equal in power and glory. There is the Father, there is the Son, the only begotten of the Father, and there is the Spirit who proceeds from both Father and Son. The Scripture tells us in First Thessalonians that you and I can quench the Holy Spirit. That is, we, we can stifle on some level His, uh, His work and His ministry in our midst. The Scripture says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 30, that you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. That is, on some level, we can sadden Him by our sin. And, and remarkably, Ephesians uh, 4.30 and 31, you'd think, well, if you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit, it must just be some really profane, heinous thing that one would do. Do you know what Ephesians 4.30 says, saddens or grieves the Holy Spirit? It is our, our quarreling, our bitterness, and our unforgiveness. But those sins can be forgiven. But this sin called blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is one that cannot be forgiven. So where do we begin in a text like this? I think we begin where the text begins, and we begin with the saving ministry of Jesus because that gives you the context for what Jesus is going to say. In verses 22 to 24, verse 22, 23, 24, you see the saving ministry of Jesus summarized uh, particularly as it relates to liberating people who were demonized or, as some texts would say, who were demon-possessed. Uh, the power of God was displayed in the ministry of Christ in staggering ways, in unparalleled ways. You know, there are um, uh, epics, E-P-O-C-H, epochs. Uh, there are epics of, of the, the work of the Spirit in the Bible when miracles and signs and wonders were more plentiful than other times for example in uh, in the days of Moses with the 10 plagues Moses was an instrument through which through whom God demonstrated his power over the idols of Egypt then you have uh, the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha and then you have the coming of Christ the inauguration of Christ's ministry beginning with this baptism in Matthew chapter 3. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The voice of God heard from heaven, This is my beloved Son. And immediately the ministry of Jesus begins in Mark chapter 4. And what a ministry it was. In fact, if you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 4 for just a minute quickly and look at the summary of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus baptized The Spirit descends upon him in Matthew chapter 3, chapter 4. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But look at Matthew chapter 4, verse um, verse 24. It says that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. What power was displayed. Dr. Gattu is a wonderful, wonderful doctor, uh, a gastroenterologist, and God in his common grace goodness has provided us with, with incredible medical advances and incredible uh, medical assistance, and I, I thank God for all of that. But this was extraordinary because there was no use of intermediate means. It was instantaneous, and it was remarkable, and it was dramatic. There are 36 recorded miracles, specifically recorded miracles, in the Gospels that Jesus performed. Blind eyes were opened. Deaf ears were unstopped. How many of you wives wish something of that nature would happen to your husbands? Let's, okay. Um a friend of mine has a has a friend who started a beltone uh every husband just looked and said, What do you say? <laughs> what? Uh a friend of mine has a friend who started a beltone hearing aid business, and he estimated that eighty percent of the men who came in there came in there at the urging of their wives. And he says, based on his Study of these men, a fully half of them, 50% of them, had no hearing impairment whatsoever. (laughs) That's not encouraging news, I know. But here's the point. Blind eyes were opened, deaf ears were unstopped, tongues that were muted and silenced, that had never formed a phrase, that had never uttered a word, were loosed by the power of Christ People who who were lepers, Hansen's disease, for which there is now a cure, horribly disfiguring. Like the, the man in, in Luke chapter 5, the scripture says he was full of leprosy. Uh, folks, that simply means that, that the leprosy was in an advanced stage and he was horribly disfigured by the leprosy. And um, Jesus touched him and he was cured and he was cleansed and he was made well. On three occasions Jesus raised people from death to life. Lazarus had been dead four days, and John eleven, his sisters, Mary and Martha, I can't keep them apart, they look uh, tell them apart, they look so much alike. But Mary and Martha um, said, one of them said, that's what I'm trying to say, said, Don't roll away the stone by now. Four days he stinks. And Jesus said, Roll away the stone. And in a word, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus came forth. And Jesus took five loaves and two fish. The loaves are about the size of your fist, kind of like Lori's um, wonderful rolls on Wednesday night. They remind me of elementary school days at Big Sandy, Tennessee. Just a wide place, a sleepy bedroom community uh, northeast of here. And we'd have these yeast rolls. And Lori's rolls remind. me, But f- uh, he took barley loaves about the size of a man's fist. And two small fish, the kind that I always catch. And he fed over 5,000. It says he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. You imagine that. You line up five of Lori's rolls. And about two fish the size of minnows, uh, which is the kind I catch. And, uh, and imagine feeding over 5,000 people with them. Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven and said, Father, I ask you to bless this food and the food was multiplied, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments left over. There were people in the multitude that day that, unlike us, didn't know what it was to go to bed with a full stomach. Uh, Dr. Katu's been to India. There are many people there who don't know what it's like to ever eat their their fill of anything and the The scripture says that they ate until they were satisfied, and then they had enough left over. For uh, lunch the next day, for the apostles, twelve baskets left over. The point that I'm making is, in the ministry of Jesus, there is incontrovertible evidence, undeniable evidence of God's power on display. This was the calling card. This, this was, these were the signs of the Messiah. And the response to this is in uh, Matthew chapter 12. If you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 12. The response to this among the crowd in verse 23 is that they were amazed. Matthew twelve twenty three, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, the, the New American Standard Bible phrases this in such a way because the, the, the Greek language phrases this in such a way, uh, uses grammar that would expect a positive answer. Uh, for example, I told our son uh, today on the phone Ryan, you're going to have to mow the lawn um, at the end of the week. And I phrased it in such a way that there would be a positive answer. And that's what this text is saying. When they say, could this be the son of David, can it? They're expecting a positive answer. And here the crowds are amazed. And and the word amazed here, existime, means that they were literally, if you could pardon this uh, expression, they were just knocked out of their socks. By what they were seeing specifically in the context here, here's a man who was demonized, uh, some translations say demon possessed but here's a man who who was inhabited by demons, and suddenly he's set free, and he is able to um, see and he is able to speak and it leads to the response in verse twenty three of the crowds being utterly amazed stunned by this incredible display of God's power, and they were wondering, could this be the Son of David? The Son of David's a messianic phrase. It's a messianic term. Now, out of all these miracles, there was something extraordinary about uh, people who were demon-possessed, such as the man in verse 22, who were being set free, because in a remarkable way, uh, you don't see any Old Testament parallels to this, in a remarkable way, those whose lives were bound demonically and who were being liberated by Christ, in a remarkable way, Jesus is showing his complete kingly rule over the powers of darkness. His total rule and reign over the powers of darkness. There's a reference in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, that speaks of Christ spoiling principalities and powers and making show of them openly triumphing over them in himself. In Luke 11, Jesus says that I'm casting out demons by the finger of God. In Matthew 12, he says, I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come near. What he's essentially saying is there is an invasion from heaven taking place in the lives of these people. God is coming near, and I am the long awaited one. I am the Messiah. I am the son of David. And I am demonstrating my authority and my power over darkness. And we see that clearly not only in this passage, but Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 8. Demon-possessed people were being set free. Matthew chapter 8, um, one whom Mark and Luke call legion. A man who was so possessed, so inhabited, so tormented his life convulsed to such an extraordinary degree that that he could not... um, be chained. He could not be restrained. He, his dwelling place was among the tombs. He cut himself and uh, he encounters Jesus and Jesus says, what's your name? And the spirit spoke through the man and said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And Jesus said in one word, set the man free. And here's a man blind and mute who's liberated. And Jesus is demonstrating the authority and the power of Christ, the King. And the people were amazed at all of this and said, could this be the one? He indeed was and is the one. Later, Matthew 21, he would come in into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry of Christ. He would come in on a donkey, the foil of a donkey. And they would cry, Hosanna, save now. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, son of David. And to all of this, the Pharisees' response in verse 24 is hard to figure out. They were not amazed, they were antagonized by the ministry of Jesus. In verse 24, when they heard this, when they heard the crowd say, Can this be the son of David? they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And, folks, this is the key, I think, to understanding the unpardonable sin. This is the reason why I think it is extraordinarily difficult. And I say this with studied reservation, with a calculated studied reservation, that it is nearly impossible to be guilty of this sin today. And I'll tell you why.